Welcome back to episode 59. This is a blog post series, which means I'm going to go over a blog, a series of blog posts on a specific topic. Today is injury and everything related to injury. Uh, being in, in martial arts, injury is kind of inevitable. Uh, and I'll probably add a lot in there about this as much as I can. And honestly, I am going to relate some of the psychological aspects uh, related a little bit to the COVID situations going on. Now, uh, I probably should do a way more research than I am going to, which is little. Um, but I'm speaking from, uh, by research, I mean sitting here looking up the uh, articles, etc. to back anything I'm saying. Up. Uh, you can look up for yourself. Um, I'm lazy. One day when I'm wealthy, I'll have a research assistant. They can do all this stuff for me. But the, I'm saying things from personal experience, from the experience of students. I have read a lot on a lot of topics. You know, I do have some background in psychology. I do have experience in physical activity since I've been teaching martial arts for a while. Um, I've listened to a lot of podcasts from firsthand sources, not second or third, right? If you watch CNN or you watch any of these media sources, that's not a first-hand source. I mean, actually, the people who did the research. Lots of podcasts out there. Uh, you can you can find that. So keep that in mind. This podcast is brought to you by Urban Tactics Kramaga. While at the time of recording this, we are kind of shuttered again due to irregular, irrational, inconsistent, ridiculous uh, government policies... Why are you yelling at us? Because you're being irrational and you're listening fear. Anyways, uh, but we do have virtual classes available at this time, although I'll probably keep them going either way because why not? Uh, Metro Vancouver's premier Kramaga self-defense school for all things Kramaga, turning lambs into lions since forever. Not not really. Um, you can train online, though, on your own time at www.utkmu.com, right? That website's still a work in progress, right? I am one person, limited time, so I can only do so much. But our white belt and novice belt curriculum is up there in its first or second iterations. So you can learn that on your own time, anywhere in the world, whenever you want. That is www.utkmu.com. Com. And also, if you're in Metro Vancouver, why not? I'll throw it out there. Although at the time of this recording, we're still waiting for our shipments, but there's a little bit of stock left. If you need fitness equipment and are in Metro Vancouver, jlfitnesslab.com. That's jlfitnesslab.com. Currently, we have barbells uh, of certain sizes. We're getting more. And bumper plates and little bit of tri-grip plates left and some puzzle mats but you can check out the stock we have and you can always wait because we're literally getting pretty much everything back in stock soon and a few more items so that's jlfitnesslab.com and yeah that's it i think really so anyways let's go back to the podcast Listening to the Warriors Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions. So, if you recall, a while back, if you followed the blog, maybe not, we did a whole series on injury. 
right? The four articles that were done was once bitten, twice shy, overcoming injured anxiety. That was done by our student, a uh, student and editor at large who was on the last podcast, Corey, writing about tearing his calf muscle and his anxiety and coming back. So that was that one. Then the next one was, of course, about my story when I tore my ACL. It was an old blog part or article I wrote, the knee so strong yet so weak, an injury recovery story, and how I recovered fairly quickly, relatively, and also what I learned about our lovely Canadian medical system, which, again, it is much better to have some medical system, so any Americans listening, there is value to having a universal healthcare system. However, to anyone listening to my uh, Canadians or anyone in a country with universal healthcare of any kind, if it is poorly managed and full of ego, there are a lot of problems. There is a plus and negative to everything. So there's the knee so strong, my injury recovery story. Then we had another article written by one of our instructors who has since moved on, Risk of Injury in Kramika, a Musician's Perspective. So again, though a short one is a little perspective on, do you have a profession that getting injured could be problematic and you don't want to train? Ties very much into injury anxiety. And then, of course, the last but not least, in martial arts, to avoid injury, pick your partner wisely. Partially how I got injured, but also how very common that a lot of people get injured because they don't assess their capabilities and their partner's capabilities. Or did you partner with the crazy person? So let's start at the beginning. The first one being Corey's injury anxiety. So have a listen. Once bitten, twice shy, overcoming injury anxiety. Tearing my soleus, inner calf muscle, was the worst soft tissue injury I have suffered in my life. Maybe I'm lucky. After skipping for five minutes to warm up, I took part in an agility drill to it that involved jumping over a partner, then dropping prone, crawling under them. One third jump and I felt an odd squelch, sensation in my calf and tightness preventing me from extending my foot properly. I stepped to the side, and thinking it was a simple cramp, I started stretching it out and working the muscle to loosen it, and then continued into the next drill. I found out later that stretching is the worst possible action one can take when dealing with a tear, as it logically exacerbates said tear. It turns out that tightening your calf soleus through one activity, skipping, then immediately loading it into another jumping is a perfectly perfect storm for muscle mangling. I was also informed, much, of my chag- much to my chagrin, that the soleus tears are common in men over 40. That is why they are referred to as the old man's injury. Ugh, time is real. Recovery was in a relatively straightforward. Don't stretch, take it easy for a few days, then slowly strengthen it by way of controlled exercise. I thought it wise to take time off of Krav Maga, and as bursting and kicking are fundamental. Nothing too complicated, and not terribly painful healing process. On the road to full recovery, no problems. However, the first day back to training, after four weeks off, I was trembling as I prepared for class. I felt totally fine on the way to the gym. In fact, I was happy to get back at it. But as I took my shoes off to step on the mats, my hands were shaking. What if my first sprint sends me back to square one? 
Over the years, I have encountered many people who cite the fear of injury as their main reason for not starting the train, martial arts, or self-defense, or to justify avoidance exercise altogether. I get it. People don't want to suffer injuries. But I'm not talking about fear of injury in the sense of whiny voice don't want to get hurt. That is simply good old self-doubt paired with cowardice. Let's be generous to say self-preservation. I'm talking about the realistic fear of suffering a chronic, debilitating injury. I expect it's so often the case that fear of injury, in the later sense, is more accurately a fear of re-injury. You have experienced the physical, mental, emotional pain of injury and recovery, possibly accomplished by a loss of mobility for the duration and most likely had to stop training. Thus, you don't want to go down that road again. Or worse, end up with more permanent problems. Of course, in the martial arts or any physical activity, you must accept that there is a degree of risk involved simply from participating some injuries are caused by partners and are, to a certain extent, out of your control. But in many cases, the injury, as was my Solaris tear, are surprising, so it may be the unexpected nature of certain injuries that contribute to the onset of anxiety. Sure, you walked in expecting to be punched, bruised, or at worst, KO'd. You are at peace with those potential consequences. But then you pull a bicep. Okay, it could happen. It heals, but not quite 100%. Now you start to feel out weaker along the chain of arm muscles. This leads to you straining your wrist due to your weakened overall punching form. Your willingness to take a punch did not prepare you for being hindered by a common sports injury. Not only were you unprepared, but now this injury has led to diminished performance in a set of techniques that, in turn, diminished your overall performance. Now, you are less confident and less likely to push yourself, and, by extension, less likely to improve. When a non-athletic individual suffers an injury, he or she is faced with the difficulty of completing normal daily tasks due to the pain and loss of mobility. Once the person returns to pre-injury levels, he or she is still only faced with the challenge of completing normal daily tasks. An athlete, on the other hand, is not only faced with the challenges of daily functioning, but also faced with the challenges of returning to the field. The act of returning to play forces an athlete to participate in the exact activity that caused injury initially. 2008, Fear of Injury, Kinesiophobia, and Perceived Risk. Page 289, Injuries in Athletics, Causes and Consequences. Thus, the rational fear of injury gained from experience can be very real, and if left unchecked, can become mental, emotional, physical hindrance. In extreme cases, if your fear of anxiety is allowed to take hold and increase, you could end up with a full-blown traumatophobia. Abnormal fear of injury or kinesiophobia, fear of moving due to pain, both of which may diminish your quality of life and delay recovery. You enjoy that activity you were engaged in? Let's assume so. Otherwise, why would you pursue it? But now your recreation, fitness, lifestyle activity has betrayed you and the joys it provided is replaced by pain and fear. I've been there twice. Trust me, it sucks. So how do we mitigate anxiety? First off, when you are injured, go see a doctor. Have the injury treated if it requires immediate attention. Cuts and breaks. 
If it doesn't require an immediate trip to the emergency room, great, but still see a physician to check related possible hidden injuries, like a concussion. Furthermore, seeing a doctor will help determine the full extent or nature of the injury. For example, is it a soleus tear rather than a calf cramp? You're expertly assessed it as. After receiving a professionally trained opinion regarding your initial injury, you want to take action. While I'm not a fit psychologist, it stands to reason that exerting and maintaining control and activity engaging in solutions that improves your situation should help reduce the anxiety surrounding the injury or mechanism of injury. While this may not entirely eliminate the possibility of fear, as some is natural, it should reduce the intensity. Be mindful that control, via avoidance, could set you down the path of the aforementioned phobias. Know that in the vast majority of cases, you will heal, and you will get back to doing what you love. Don't give up, don't stop taking care of your mind and body. A positive mindset and an active participation in your own recovery will logically make it easier to face the injuries actively, activity once more in the future. Get checked out. Number one, get checked out. After the initial injury, you will want to see both a doctor and a physiotherapist, preferably a sports-focused one, if you can even can everyone's resources different. I say both because doctors are great for diagnosing and treating acute injuries, but physio specialists are better for helping you develop and execute a recovery plan. Understand your injury, too. You don't just want to heal your wounds and get back at it. You want to understand why and how you were injured in order to reduce the chances of re-injury and so to your fear of re-injury. Take the responsibility of learning about the anatomy and physics that got you into the trouble in the first place, and then get better. Sometimes this means understanding basic kinesiology. Sometimes it means learning to keep your hands up in sparring. Set rules and expectations. Three, be honest about your limitations and create guidelines for yourself in order to stay active in a safe manner. Everyone is different, and everyone requires a different approach to healing and rebuilding. Here are some general considerations. Modify activities. Go slower, engage in reduced intensity or lower impact versions of exercise techniques drills. It is in your best interest to be honest and realistic. For example, in martial arts, it is unlikely that you can train throws, takedowns, or ground fightings while recovery from an injury. But again, it varies based on the nature of the injury. Talk with your instructor and a competent one will be able and willing to accommodate you. Are you allowed to audit a class? I attend the class, watch, listen, but not participate. This is a good way to stay in the headspace of your activity and while healing. Plus, you will be surprised at how much knowledge you pick up by watching others. What this means, this is an add-in. Show up to the damn class. If you had scheduled, this is me being me, scheduled your normal weekly routine... To go to these classes at aforementioned times, whether it be uh, Tuesday, Thursday, whatever, show up anyway. You can get benefit even if you're not doing. And I think as an instructor, I've assessed that this is an issue with individuals of all sorts that feel if they're not doing, they're not learning. This is nonsense. You're injured. Can you safely make it to class during the times you would normally go? If the answer is yes, go to damn class doing this a long time i get tired of reasons i understand the psychology i get it i get tired of the reasons why people just don't show up show up and learn back to the article 
be realistic about severity. Be aware of how limited you are in range of motion and level of exertion. Are you able to participate safely for yourself and others? Will one wrong step re-injure you or worse, uh, worsen the severity? It may be that some time off is required. Talk to your instructor. Again, it's you have to know your body anyways. Know thyself. There you go. Yes, more deep self-reflection is required. Are you the type of person who can actually sit down on the sidelines? Will you follow your own rules? If you are like me, possessed of sometimes reckless willingness to go harder than you should, let those around you know your self-imposed limitations and let them help you stay accountable. If you cannot keep yourself reined in enough to train safely, maybe do something else to keep you fit while in recovery. Be communicative with your training partners. Don't let your ego get in the way. Keep active. Don't, number four, don't fully stop unless you really have to. Stay off it isn't always accurate. Scientifically informed advice, even coming from a doctor. Broken arm? Focus on your lower body or use this as a time to start engaging more cardio work. I find that humans have a sort of mental inertia. Stopping fully will make getting back on the horse much harder. Additionally, your removal from the any activity allows you way too much time to think and create a void for negative memories of the injury to grow and exaggerate impacting your comfort level with said activity when you return, thus increasing possible onset of fear and anxiety if you return at all. Recheck number five. Reassess the injury as it heals. Then reassess the plan for recovery in parallel. Also, don't neglect your mental well-being throughout the process. Consider how you are feeling. What are your thoughts regarding your return to action? Do you feel a creeping dread? Do you feel fine until it's time to go like I did? Should you see a counselor to help with overcoming the fear of re-injury or anxiety of returning 100%? There are sports therapists who specialize in sports counseling, mental strength training. There's a link there. At the end of the day, you have to decide your own path. I assert that if you are be truthful with yourself, take an active role in your recovery, even if that means modifying exercises or sitting out on certain drills, you will be able to ease back into your favorite activity while you heal. Yes, I have a hard time sitting on the sidelines, and too many times I have said, of course I'll spar when I know I shouldn't, and set my healing back a week. So for me, injuries often mean time off to protect me from myself. Honestly, if I was into mountain biking or rock climbing, I'd probably be in a wheelchair or a pine box by now. But that doesn't mean quit. I'm currently dealing with a back injury, but I'm actively dealing with it. When I'm not training Krav Maga, I'm doing my physio-assigned back exercises. I'm reading about self-defense theory. I'm working on basic kicks and punches with my daughters. To teach is to learn. I'm running. I'm working on personal training for core strength. I'm focused energy on changing my diet to improve my physical performance. And before I know it, I'm back into the lower impact basic defense classes. Those go well so that I'm planning ahead for where my back needs to be in order to ease back into the warrior classes. And I probably should be auditing the novice colorblind classes. Adopt a mindset that is temporary and you will overcome it as your or any physical challenge. Some people 
would say I was injured while biking. I'll never get on a bike again. But in my opinion, that leaves behind a part of your life that you enjoyed. It narrows the breadth of your experience and allows you to give it living based on fear. And that is a slippery slope. And life is too short. Written by Corio. Audio by Jonathan Fader. So how was that? Right? Injury anxiety is a big issue. Either the fear of getting injured, so I don't do martial arts, or you get injured and you never come back. Now, I have no measurements for this because, to be honest, when people stop training, they're either off. When I ask, why did you leave? I know people are not honest. Either they're not being honest to me. I left because you're an asshole, John. People don't like to say that. So they just say, oh, well, you know, stuff and stuff. Um, or they don't want to be honest about themselves and their own personal anxieties or fear why they, they don't want to come back. Maybe it's age-related. Maybe it's injury-related. But I would say anecdotally that top three reason, one of the top three reasons why people don't come back is injury anxiety or fear of getting hurt or they got hurt and they don't want to come back. I would say schedule changes, financial situations, uh, schedule changes also being work schedule or they moved, right? And financial changes are often uh, that. I would say adding on also, they feel they're stagnant or progressing or they got what they wanted out of it and they moved on. But I, top three, top two even is injury anxiety and whether they're honest or not with me, I can, I can, I've been doing this a while and I can kind of tell. Now, let's start actually with the UTKM tests. Now, our tests are difficult and they should be difficult. In a lot of schools around the world, their lower level tests are easy. And in some schools around the world, they're long as an indication of difficulty. Well, sometimes they have to be long just out of necessity of what you're testing people on. And sometimes it's just like, okay, what, what are you doing? But anyways, I have found people take our yellow belt test, which is not the hardest thing in the world, but it's definitely going to challenge you, especially if you've been doing a desk job your whole life and you've never pushed yourself to your limits. I've never had anyone pass out yet close to but not quite what happens is they take that yellow belt test and then they say that was hard i don't want to have to do that again and they never come back or they'll come back for a month or two and then just start panicking and they don't come back or they did get slightly injured there have been a few little injuries in the tests uh broken rib once or twice uh sprained ankles Right. One thing to know about our testing is if you if you get injured in class, sit down. We got tons of time. Take the break you need. Do your proper healing process. Because it's Kramaga, you get injured in the test. You got to finish. You have to finish because part of it is mental resilience. You could get injured in an assault, and you have to keep going. So a lot of students, it's really hard, or they got injured, slightly or otherwise, and they never come back. And they, they tell me all sorts of bullshit of why they're not coming back. I know why they're not coming back it's anxiety it's fear right i i've had people in their 40s and 50s get all the way up to green belt okay if you really want to do it you can do it the tests are scalable by the way i don't just go ham i push it and my other instructors will push it to your limit if we think it's too easy for you we're going to make it a little bit harder run a little bit longer make the drills a little bit harder 
we see you're dying, we'll scale it back. You got to get through the process though, because what the purpose is is that. Now, let's say you get injured in regular class. Well, okay, come back and uh, watch, learn, study, take notes. Uh, not in my student, because this is honestly very rare. People are like, well, if I can't do it, I don't want to come back. It's like, okay, but you're, you're still learning. And there's a woman in our BJJ club, not mine, all props to her, got injured, came, and I think she's in her 40s with kids, and uh, she take notes during BJJ. Kept coming to every class. I was like, man, I wish every student was like that. I know tons of people just... Full of shit. Don't talk. If you're not going to come, don't come. Now, if you need to legitimately, it's so bad, you need to take the hospital break or you need to do uh, rehab, do it. But if you're able to physically come in that door, sit down, take notes, watch. Right? Now, injury anxiety. I once upon a time had a student, didn't last long. Now, Listen, I did occupational health and safety. I know first aid. I've been doing it. Well, I did it professionally for a while. Um, I understand injury risk mitigation. There are people in this world who believe that you must be able to mitigate all risk to everyone at all times. Those people make the world shittier for everyone else. Really and truly. Uh, What was it? The Blue Collar Comedy Tour. One of the comedians had the... Stupid people should have to wear a sign. Stop putting warning labels on everything, right? It's a similar concept. We have to legislate everything. Nobody gets hurt ever again. That's bullshit and delusion. You're doing martial arts. If you, I, So back to that same story. I had a student came in. They got minorly injured. Not, not significant. They just got hit a little hard, I think it was. What are you doing to protect me? You didn't protect me enough. You're not doing enough. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? You sign a waiver. I tell everyone all the time. You can ask my students and instructors. You need to be safe. Train safe. Don't be crazy. Push yourselves. Be responsible. You're adults. Very conscious of, of concussions. Uh, we wear proper sparring gear. We don't go 100%. We tell everyone to verbalize if the other person is sparring too hard. Right? Doing a lot. I have insurance, which a lot of clubs don't, in Canada at least. Uh, you didn't do enough. No, you're a crazy person. Okay? That's what it is. If you come to martial arts and say, can you promise me I will never get injured? Get the fuck out. This is the wrong place for you. Really. I'm going to build you up into a warrior. If you don't like pain, well, you can learn to like it. Well, tolerate it. <laughs> I don't like pain, but I can tolerate it if I have to. Given the choice, I don't like it. I will avoid it. But under duress, I have proven to myself, I don't really need to prove to other people, I can deal very well. So you will learn through coming and training that you will you will be able to tolerate that pain a little bit more. Um if you can't handle it, then too bad. If you want to never get injured, too bad. I, any martial artist who loves it, that's how the sign, by the way, that's to me how the, uh, the sign that you're, you're either a true martial artist or warrior, however you want to frame it, is that you got injured, you kept training, and you kept doing it. Right, I've had broken fingers, they've torn ACL, as we'll talk about later, uh, fractures, sprains, popped elbows. I still train. Right, you adapt as you need to. In fact, I got better after major injuries. 
right? So you want to learn to be a warrior. You want to learn Krav Maga or any martial art. You want to get the black belt. There's a reason most people don't. They give up. And if the reason is injury anxiety or fear of that, it's a problem. That's in. That's on you to a degree. Now, on that note, if there's a high injury rate all the time at a club, don't go to that club. That's bad. Like every class, someone gets hurt. It's major. Like we went years without an injury one time. It's just, it's inevitable that it will happen. Um, now, I had a well-known Kramaga instructor in town once. They're known for being a little nuts. In their seminar was three to four to five people got injured because just they didn't seem to give a shit that training civilians who are not physically capable and the drills they had them doing were crazy and too many people got hurt due to poor management. So it can be the instructor and that's notorious for that particular instructor. Um, so it, it can, but in, a lot of times it's you are an adult, you're not making correct decisions, your ego got in the way, or you picked the wrong partner or something like that. Now, let's talk about anxiety and injury. I'm going to relate this to COVID. If you're a martial artist, there is already an inherent risk before COVID, period. By doing martial arts, you're putting yourself at greater risk to injury than a desktop. Now, COVID, while is an issue, right, is going to be here to stay. Now, I sincerely hope once the government stop being absolutely insane with their attitudes towards stuff, and I say that because they're not operating scientifically, and it's very easy to prove. If governments were operating scientifically with their policies, the policies within reason, because it does have to vary region to region and legal stuff, governments around the world would be all following similar policies within reason based on law and regional needs. They are not. You are seeing the similar results relatively at one point or another all over the world, whether you lock down or not. If you lock down and lock everybody in their house, of course no one's going to get it. The moment you open up, if the virus is not eradicated, which it won't be because it's an NRNA-based virus, like a cold or flu, so stop saying it's not, everyone's going to get it again. They are not operating scientifically. If it is RNA-based virus, which in the human history, we have never come up with a true vaccine to cure or eliminate an RNA-based virus, it is not going away because they evolve too quickly. By the way, in the history of man, the f- give or take, up until recently, the fastest they ever came up with the vaccine was three years. So if you're talking about, say, polio or measles or something like that, that is DNA-based, does not change very rapidly, could maybe one, two, three, four, five years change, and it takes three years, you can come up with the vaccine quick enough, get the poly, uh, get the population up to what they, I forgot the name for it, but 95, uh, herd immunity, 95% herd immunity, people who are vaccinated will eradicate the virus. And you're seeing in places like LA, because of all the left-wing anti-vaxxers, left-wing anti-vaxxers, by the way, some of these extinct viruses are popping up again. I guess they weren't extinct completely. RNA-based viruses can evolve in three months, two months. There's already several strains of COVID-19, right, which is COVID-19-2. COVID-19-1 was SARS, and there are four other 
give or take, in the family of COVID, which are standard cold and flu viruses, right? So the analogy that it's flu-like, not a, not the same, flu-like, it was demonized at the beginning, was unscientific and full of shit, okay? Anyways, once the government stopped this bullshit of unscientific, unproven crap to protect their own system, which they have failed to build to deal with these systems, I'll get into that shortly. It's a little off-topic ramp, but whatever. Um... If you still don't come back after that vaccine is released, you have to realize you have injury anxiety or fear of being infected with COVID. But if there's a vaccine, as they keep saying, well, we'll be fine. Well, that's not going to eliminate the virus, but it should give you enough confidence to come back. And again, COVID-19, still mostly elderly people. In Metro Vancouver, they announced numbers over the weekend. Highest deaths ever, all in elderly homes. Seems to be it's the staff bringing it in, not visitors. Um, this is related because the media and governments use fear to control people. Don't quote science when you're not being scientific. I'm seeing tons of people saying science experts, they're not applying it in a scientific, reasonable way whatsoever. And yes, I'm seeing people on both sides, left and right political spectrum, being wildly inaccurate about statements about vaccines and not statement vaccines and COVID itself because they don't understand the science and they're mixing it with policy and you have to separate what's the actual data. Yes, science changes and it can adapt, but you can't use that as a bullshit excuse for failed policy, by the way. Well, we don't know the science is not set in stone, but trust the science then don't make policies if you don't know what you're doing. Play the middle ground. Simple, right? And I say that, uh, why I'm shitting on the governments, because this was avoidable. Uh, there's a guy named Michael Osterholm who wrote a book, Deadliest Enemy. He wrote it in 2017 after SARS-CoV-2, talking about pandemic responses. He basically acknowledged in that book, they knew they didn't have... Um, proper pandemic response. They weren't prepared for it. I knew this when I did occupational health and safety in 2006, where uh, emergency preparedness is its complete own field in occupational health and safety because it's so complex. And what I learned is governments consistently do not plan, prepare, and update plans for these things. Pandemic hits, earthquake hits, hurricane hits, boom, plan, execute. Every time they fail. Michael Osterholm, by the way, is appointed to Joe Biden's COVID response team. If he ends up becoming president, we'll see what happens. Most likely, he knows better. I don't rely on governments for emergency preparedness, nor should you. You can't. You as a voter, it's your fault, actually, because it costs a lot of money. Tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to maintain emergency preparedness plans, by the way. And you yell at governments for saying, why'd you spend $100 million on earthquake preparedness every five years? Well, we have to replace all the gear just in case. Why'd you spend that kind of money? I want this park now. And then now we end up in the situation we are in. The point about all this is stop letting fear rule you. Stop letting them use fear rule you. This applies to injury anxiety due to injury or the fear of getting injured this also applies to when governments are making you so terrified you don't want to go out and do anything when really it's a failure of the system 
to do the thing that we've actually elected them to do, which is coordinate on mass scale issues. That includes pandemics. There were pandemic plans written, which should include earlier, but earlier border shutdowns. But, you know, racism had something to do with it. No, it did not. You're playing politics, assholes. And now you've caused fear and panic like I've never seen in my lifetime. With that being said, this is nowhere near as bad as World War I or World War II or the Spanish flu in 1919. It's just we've had an incredible time uh, of peace and prosperity, relatively. Systems that have been breaking for a while, though, and you're starting to see them really break. And instead of letting them sort of fix themselves, they're trying to control everything, which includes your fear. And I'm seeing people being completely irrational, people who respect me know that I know what I'm talking about with regards to science within reason. No, I'm not an expert. You don't need to be an expert anymore because you can look up what the experts are saying directly and consistently because of the damn internet. I'm not talking about Reddit. Okay? Stop going on Reddit. Read the damn sources from the actual scientists. With that being said, scientists tend to be left-wing, so they will have a political bias too. Mask thing, by the way, was to do a supply chain. That's fact. Fauci in America even admitted to him lying. And then they wonder why people don't trust them. Yes, I believe the collective public is a little silly, called mass hysteria or mob mentality. So they think that we're going to lie now because they don't know better. It's called the internet dipshits. It exists now. Stop lying. Should have said masks. Uh, props to Eric Weinstein said this actually. They should have said, we screwed up, our supply chains for masks aren't good, any company that can help us, we will get it out, and told people to wear masks earlier. Now, masks are not really going to do too much. They do prevent spread from spit. That's not a debatable thing. I learned that 10 years ago, because you spit and cough. So, again, if it's 10% efficacy and we're trying to unburden the system, you know, not a problem wearing masks, it's mass hysteria around it that's a problem. And the mandates outright. If you feel comfortable wearing one, wear one. If you don't, don't. If you go into a store that says you must wear a mask, then wear it. That's private business. They can do that. Deal with it. But you're starting to actually see how anxiety can affect your decision making, whether it be through injury anxiety or whether it be because of COVID. I'm young and healthy. The statistics, relatively young and healthy. The statistics show I'm probably okay. And I understand it's not just about me. Where has the money been going to bolster the medical systems? That's where the money should be going. That's what government should be doing. Management policies, not shut down. Manage it and bolster what needs to be bolstered, which is ERs, beds, etc. Now anxiety, you're seeing what anxiety on mass can do mass hysteria so that's the macro back to the micro of injury anxiety do you want to learn a martial arts now you're starting to learn what happens when you can't at all and you're like i need to train i need to train bring that to the mac micro when it's just you and you're like i'm making the decision myself you're lying to yourself about why you're not training and it's the injury anxiety now you're being told you can't train and you're like oh, how dare they What's going on in your mental processing? What's the difference? You're being told you can't train externally. You want to train. But when you're being told you can't train internally, 
It's excuses. If you want to train, find a way to do it. If you don't, then be honest. I don't want to train. I have some students who message me once in a while. They're full of shit. I'd come back, but I'm thinking about coming back. No, fuck off. Don't send me those messages. Walk in the damn door and start training. If you're looking for my permission to come back, I'm just going to tell you to train. Well, well, the door is open. Well, not right now, but the door is open. Come on in. What's the difference between you being told externally you can't train and internally? Other than it literally external internal. It's the same result. You can't train. Do not let fear and anxiety control your life that you can't do the thing that you want to do. We are, a lot of people, especially if you grew up in the 80s, though, that's a little bit before my time. I want to be a ninja. Bruce Lee. I want to be a black belt. It's awesome. Dude, 10 years. If you're really athletic, maybe 5 to 8. And it's one type of martial arts. That's how long it takes. So all the McDojos out there, which exist in Krav Maga, go fuck yourselves for lying to people about how long and how hard it is actually to do. 8 to 15 years on average for a legitimate black belt and that's consistent reasonably consistent training at least twice a week preferably more but at least twice a week you're gonna get a little injury stopping you a little bit of age you just change a little bit how you train you'll get there don't let the test scare you in utcam specifically you only have to do it once hopefully well five or six times but each time you'll be a little better each time it's a little easier you psych yourself out because anxiety you're not getting you're not achieving the goal i think anxiety and the inability of individuals to deal with their anxieties is actually the biggest pandemic of this age social media is making it worse that's the real pandemic is anxiety and fear fear has always been around and we can't actually realistically measure how people were anxious uh, a long time ago it's hard to say but it's causing bad decision-making. It's causing panicking. It's causing people not to do what they want to do. It's causing people not to execute their life plans. If your life plan is, I want to be a black belt, then train. Oh, you got injured? Do some rehab, come back, ease yourself into it. But if you let the anxiety win, you'll never be a ninja. So, the next one is, of course... The knee, so strong, yet so weak. An injury and recovery story. Uh, this is a response to last week's injury anxiety. It's a republished one, so here's the foreword. This piece was originally written and posted on January 12, 2017. It has been updated and re-edited for 2020. Last week, our editor posted about his experience with injury in martial arts, as well as injury anxiety in the post, once bitten, twice shy, overcoming injury anxiety. As a martial arts artist and instructor, I can say without a doubt that fear of injury and injury anxiety are a common, if not most common, the reason why people abandon their, their martial arts journey. For some students, it is a situation they experience, witness, or hear about in class that pushes them past their comfort zone, which in turn triggers this fear or self-doubt, and they stop coming. For others, they suffer an actual injury and never come back due to this fear. Then there are those who finish our first test, which is very hard, and they no longer want to continue because the fear of further challenges sets in. To me, however, getting injured and coming back stronger is a sign that you may in fact be a true martial artist or warrior. 
No one ever said it was going to be easy. Joyous journey, but the skills and personal development you gain from self-defense combative practice is more than worth it. This post discusses the most disastrous injury that I have ever had and my road to recovery. I believe that if you truly understand your body and become your own doctor, learning how to properly recover and become stronger with proper research, not pseudoscience, then it will reduce the fear of injury, which may be inevitable in martial arts training for the most, allowing you to continue, grow, develop, and challenge yourself. Sometimes that is increasingly important in a world where people no longer like to be challenged. With that in mind, read my story of injury, pain, and recovery. Pound for pound, the knee is one of the strongest offensive strikes the human body can generate. But many folks out there, whether athletic or not, find out that with one wrong movement or one wrong hit in the wrong way, their strong offensive weapons becomes limp as a wet noodle. In my case, it was the dreaded anterior cruciated ligament ACL injury. I'm not even 30 and my knee is already going. Now at the time I'm reading this, I am 33. Do your math. Woo. This can easily make a person feel old. It reminds me a line spoken in a word piece, Wear Sunscreen by Australian producer Buzz Lurman, in which the advice is given. Be kind to your knees. You'll miss them where they're gone. There is a video in the actual uh, post. Here I am supposedly in my prime and my ACL is torn on one side, making me feel like an old man as my other knee is going too. Ironically, I'm surprised they lasted this long. As a rifleman, light machine gunner, and sniper in the IDF, I often carried far too much weight for my little legs and knees to handle. Add to that all the road running I used to do, I guess my knees had a good run. Pun intended. People are constantly shocked by how quickly I recover post-injury and post-surgery and get back to regular activities. I'm usually met by skepticism and rolling eyes when I tell people, don't worry, I heal fast. As the doctor said, it's people like you I worry about the most. I'm not Wolverine, X-Men, and I don't have a mutant healing factor or other superhuman resilience. In fact, I don't really even consider myself very athletic. One of the reasons I was drawn to Krav Maga, so... Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So why should I heal any faster than anyone else? The truth is, I don't heal any faster than the average person. But I have a theory as to why people think and say such a thing. Let's begin by breaking down the injury and recovery. First, I would like to be critical about our medical system, even in Canada. We have a broken medical system, in my opinion. Generally, doctors are experts in acute injury diagnosis and treatment, but when it comes to post-injury recovery, they are almost clueless. They do not employ a holistic approach and rarely understand, to the level that they should, aspects of medicine and healing. In Canada, though our medical care is largely covered, and I say largely because there are still costs, there is a serious shortage of qualified professionals and equipment. In my case, when I was injured, I knew there was something more serious than it's just a sprain. The doctor assessed it as. There is a meme about the Canadian universal health care. Long waiting periods, etc. Also, the requirement for doctor signatures. Uh, this is an add-on, by the way. Uh, doctor signatures over everything else, even those other qualified practitioners in other fields, such as physios, etc., should be able to assess properly. Anyways, the day after my injury, my doctor was overbooked. It happened late at night, so I went to the ER instead. 
which had a long wait time as usual due to overcrowding. Finally, after several hours, I see a doctor only, be to, only to be told they think it's just a sprain. They sold me some crutches and prescribed me light painkillers. A week later, I finally managed to see my regular doctor and was told something similar. The idea of an MRI scan wasn't even mentioned until I was to went to a physiotherapist, which was covered by our WorkSafe BC coverage because it happened at my work. So we have WorkSafe coverage. Uh, I'm not going to get into that topic right now. Uh, this is appalling to me because as far as I know, the sooner a proper acute accurate diagnosis can be made the faster a surgery or rehab can happen and the faster i can heal the recovery all these things would lead to a better experience for both the patient and medical professionals with lower costs for the medical system overall so why didn't i get an mri right away well if you're unaware the whole nation of canada has fewer mir machines than some individual cities in america this results in a long wait list, and even when you can get bumped to the front of the line through WorkSafe, there is still a resistance to sending you to the private clinics. If I had been seen sent for an MRI within two weeks of my injury, as I should have happened after, of course, swelling went down, they would have discovered that I had this seriously torn ACL and meniscus. But since it took about two months to get an MRI, albeit it was faster than the normal six to nine months wait, they would have discovered it sooner and not wasted time thinking about it was something less serious. This means that even in a country like Canada with so-called advanced medical system, there are serious problems and really cannot rely on the advice of just one called so-called medical professional. I mean, they are, but ego, etc., a lot of times, these people are tired, overworked, and too accustomed to patients who exaggerate their symptoms. This is why I say it's important to know your body properly and don't be a hypochondriac. Although in my case, I was under-exaggerating my injuries since I have a high pain tolerance, so they assumed it was nothing, despite the details I was verbally indicating. Basically, what that means is you need to act like you're in total ridiculous pain for them to bother, which is insanity. Anyways, back to it. When I finally had the MRI, I was referred to a specialist. Once I saw the specialist, things moved forward rather quickly. Her question was basically, so when do you want to see the surgery? Oh, MRI shows it's busted. Okay, we can get you surgery. Yay. Back to the main topic about my not Wolverine healing abilities. Here is one of my theories as to why people have the perception that I heal fast on average. One of the biggest problems in the medical system is the overprescription of painkillers. In my opinion, this is one of the main hindrances to how fast a person can heal and get back to normal activities. When I am teaching my kids Krav Maga classes, I often leave every little bump and every little scrape becomes a big deal to the kids, and I always teach the children that simple lesson. There is a difference between pain and injury. Pain is your natural body's way of giving you feedback to assess whether something is possible threat. However, it is a very simplistic system and doesn't always know the difference between something that is actually harmful and something that is not. As a reasonably developed species, we should be able to use our conscious mind based on our experiences and mechanism of the pain to know if it is just hurt or actually injured within, you know, within reason. I always tell my students that pain is good and injury is not. You should fight through pain when it is just pain, but stop when pain is related to an injury and take care of the injury seriously. 
Thus, I am not a fan of painkillers prescribed by doctors. Generally, medication should only be used when necessary, such as taking acetaminophen for a fever or NyQuil or DayQuil for a serious cold. It should only also be used as long as needed, which is usually a day or two. For some people a little longer. Of course, pain tolerances are different. Yet doctors often prescribe two weeks to a month or more of serious heavy-duty painkillers, which can be highly addictive to a lot of people. They tell you the maximum you should take and for how long, which means that you should not take any pills you are given, but people st- all the pills you are given, but people still do. Which leads us to the issue with painkillers and other meds. By taking painkillers for longer than you need, just because you are prescribed them, it dulls your body's natural pain response and you can no longer hear your body's feedback. Eventually, if you take them too long, your body's pain threshold will have shifted and your overall tolerances to pain without painkillers will have been reduced. By the way, this is the start of an addiction when it comes to painkillers, as you will constantly be trying to maintain your new pain threshold baseline, which is now only achievable through the pills themselves. This is why heroin, when medically supervised by doctors in hospital, is a better pain alternative than morphine and is less addictive. Yes, you read that right. But I won't get too sciencey. The fact remains that the layperson's understanding of painkillers and other meds is dramatically limited. You can go look stuff up these days, so it shouldn't be. Addiction issues aside... There are two main problems. Either you diminish your ability to feel when pain becomes injury, then you push yourself too hard, or you become docile and don't know when your injury is ready to begin rehab because you no longer know the difference. This is why post-injury and post-surgery, I rarely take painkillers for more than two to three days. I typically only use them to help me sleep and overcome the initial acute pain, which is often a bit more than I would like to deal with. Although if it's anything related to the head, like when I had facial uh, deviated septum, oh, I couldn't sleep. So yeah, I took them for two to three days. Anyways, however, even if I walk with a limp, I would rather get rid of the medication as soon as reasonably possible than to delay, rely on things like crutches and lose my body's natural senses and abilities. Generally, in both st- studies and anecdotes, evidence shows that the faster you get back to regular movement within reason, the faster you can heal yourself. The body is both an inefficient piece of junk and amazing and an amazing machine. If you take painkillers longer than you need and cannot receive the appropriate pain feedback, then you cannot properly heal yourself. Many also go wrong with using painkillers to push through pain, which is not advisable because then you cannot know when the body moves from pain to injury and and this is a crippling mistake for many athletes. Listen to your body. If that means you don't do anything that day, then you don't. If you can push another day, then you do. But the sooner you get back into simple things like moving, walking, and doing regular day-to-day activities, the better. Have you heard of those people who work their entire lives and then in their late 70s or 80s they just stop or are forced to retire and then die? I think this is a great analogy for muscle atrophy. If you don't use it, you lose it. Have you heard of that? Surprisingly, muscle atrophy, meaning that your muscles start to deteriorate rapidly, can kick in very quickly, usually around 72 hours of non-use, which means if you take most doctor's advice and rest up to six weeks, you will see major muscle loss and the recovery will be much harder. Often doctors and physiotherapists hesitate to push people and thus continue prescribing fairly basic exercises. More so the doctors. The physio really depends on their experience and skill set, of course, which may be great for office workers, but not for an athlete. 
and even for office workers, get off your ass. As an athlete, sometimes safe, yet serious strength training is required. For me, the result of my post-injury recovery was not happening as fast as I would have liked. It was my first experience going to physio, and I did everything they said. However, my impatience comes from being told to do very boring exercises with minimal results. In my case, I know my body very well, uh, so be careful with what I just said. What's more... I would have to stop what I was doing four times a day for 20 to 30 minutes to do the exercises. It became a hindrance to my work with no benefit to my recovery. Again, personal, very personal. So I started doing my own exercises, which limiting myself to light squats and deadlifts keeping the weight light. Two months after my initial, I was doing 200-pound deadlifts, no problem again. Of course, I was wearing my knee brace and would end a set if there was any serious discomfort. However, with this approach, I saw far quicker recoveries than when I had just listened to the so-called experts. I'm not trying to discredit medical professionals. This is not at all what I am trying to say. The problem is that due to our system or lack of experience, scarce resources, including time, there is often a disconnect between injury and recovery from a lot of these medical professionals. And if you can't afford to see all the appropriate people, then it's going to be difficult. The sooner rehab starts, generally, the faster people can get back to normal activities, the faster and better the overall recovery. How do I know when my doctor is right or wrong? Sometimes, of course, you should listen to the professional advice when it is legitimate. In my case, I listened to when the doctor specifically asked me or not to bend my knee more than 90 degrees for six weeks, regardless of pain. This is to allow the fixed areas, by that I mean the specialist, the surgeon. Uh, This is allow the fixed areas, specifically the meniscus, time to properly heal and become as strong as required. So basically, she said that you can exercise and get your range of motion back, but don't go beyond 90 degrees, as in don't bring your heel to your butt for at least six weeks, which is no problem. So no deep squats, for example. Uh, However, all this means is simply that I should be careful and modify the exercises to adhere to that specific limitation. I can still attempt light squats with limited range of motion, despite what the doctor, the regular doctors, think. Healing and returning to normal happens faster when I listen to my body and the advice of the doctor and physiotherapist. Your body knows itself best as long as you are fairly self-aware and attuned to your body's message. You should let your body guide you. And seriously, don't rush. As an athlete, I know that pushing too much too quickly because you want to get back in the game and prove yourself is not a good idea. For me, this has meant no Kramaga or BJJ for at least two months and no rolling or sparring for three to four months. There is still a dispute as to whether it makes a difference to get surgery ASAP and then do physio or vice versa. It is in my opinion, though, as an athlete, that surgery should happen, if required, as soon as possible. And you should do physio before and after the surgery. Get your range of motion as fast as possible, and then after surgery again, and then build up strength. If there's too long of a delay in between surgery, of course, you have to do tons extra work. It is fairly conclusive that doing physio and rehab to get back to regular activities ASAP means a better recovery. In my case, the longer I had to wait for my surgery, the worse my uninjured knee got because it was compensating. Having a surgery done ASAP, in my case, again, or in general, will 
requires your body will not have to go through multiple healing processes and can get back to what you'd love to do with less risk of degradation of your other areas of the body. So stay off the painkillers when you don't actually need them. Get moving and get healing. When it comes to injury recovery, push when there is no pain and rest or stop when you feel pain. Through time, you will know if the pain is related to injury or if it just hurts. Remember, pain is fine, injury is not. That is my secret. Simple, really. Written by Jonathan Fader. Audio by Jonathan Fader. Okay, so that was my story about my knee. It's an example of training partners, which we'll get to earlier. My skill level wasn't high enough. I was trying to muscle through a much larger individual who's way more athletic than me. It's physically dominating. And physics won. Right? So you have to be careful on that. I also learned about the medical system. I've talked about this before, but it's just like you need to learn to be your own doctor. Now, if you don't understand basic medical stuff and basic science, then maybe you shouldn't be your own doctor because you're going to get it wrong a lot of the time. Now, I told doctors so many times, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. Now, again, our system with the MRIs is problematic because there's not enough MRI machines. All this money getting thrown into other areas of other countries and blah, 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 buy more MRIs, you motherfuckers. You will make people's quality of life so much better. Oh, you have a soft tissue injury. Boom, MRI. Instead of doctors feeling around like a bunch of assholes, do the damn scan. And then you can stop wasting actually time and money and people's lives to fix the thing properly. When you identify what the actual problem is, which a lot of times doctors don't actually identify, they're identifying symptoms or they're guessing. When you actually really truly figure out what the actual issue is, you can heal it and get back to training as quickly as I did. Granted, they did do a newer type of ACL surgery on me, which seems to be the standard now where they just reattach rather than replace. Uh, so I did heal quickly, but it's also because I kind of ignored what I was being told to do. Not ignorantly, not like, ah, I'm going to do what I want, but because I knew they weren't being logical. That we need you to build muscle. We need you to build muscle, rebuild muscle, rebuild muscle. Cool. How do you rebuild muscle? Usually weight with weight. You need to put strength training, which means building muscle through putting weights on you. And the doctors, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. No, don't do it, don't do anything. Just just sort of walk around, that's it. How am I going to build strength? Even my physio, who is more an expert on soccer rehab, was like, no, don't put too much weight. And I, I ignored them. I stuck to what the surgeon said, which was don't go past the range of motion from this point. I think they know what's going to cause it to tear again. But I still did weight. I did like quarter squats instead of half squats, full squats. Eventually I got the half squats and eventually I got the full squats. I was not back to my normal self. My body didn't adapt properly for at least a year and I wasn't 100% for another year and a half. But I was able to start training again relatively quickly doing drills. No sparring for, I don't know, a few months. But in jiu-jitsu, for example, or other stuff. But I was able to do it. Even when I tore my SEL the first time, I still managed to do stuff. 
you do need to get your range of motion back first, which requires you to get the swelling down first, then you can get your range of motion back. Um, and then you can start weight-bearing. You have There is a process. The doctors and physios often will tell you, don't do enough, because they're concerned about individuals who go ham right away because of ego and especially athletes you gotta you really gotta know your body and you gotta know your ego don't push yourself so hard to get re-injured because a lot of people do re-injure themselves within the first six months so you gotta be careful of that but you need to know your own body and you need to know when you're being bullshitted because they're like we don't want you to come back we don't want to see you here again because it costs the medical system money so we don't want you to do anything in fact, they're doing detriment to you. I had to do physio twice. Should have done it once at the expense of our medical system. So cut the bullshit. Do the scans. Understand how this actually works. Doctors are not physios. Doctors are not nutritionists. There's huge gaps in doctors' knowledge base a lot of the time. And they don't want to admit it. Because I went to med school for 10 years and it was hard and I have an ego. Fuck you. You don't know much about nutrition. They're starting to change that but not yet. You don't know. You can't diagnose soft tissue from feeling from the outside. Sorry, we have technology now. Get over yourself. Very few can, I should say. There are probably some who are excellent and can do it because they're so experienced and they are actual specialists, but generally not. You need to be your own doctor. Time after time and time again. By the way, again, if you don't understand basic medical or how the body works, then maybe it's not a good idea. But there's a reason they often say, go get a second opinion. Go to one doctor, go to two doctors, go to three doctors and see. Not just shopping around for what you want, but if you really feel like something's wrong, then you you might be right. Because, you know, doctors here, being as a public medical system, have 10 to 15 minutes to see you. They're not going to actually be able to diagnose you effectively, especially if they're not doing the scan. So if you get injured and you want to recover, if you know how to, even basic first aid can help right okay this hurts um does it feel like a break or does it feel like that now those are the things you got to learn if you don't know the difference if you're a hypochondriac that goes to the doctor for everyone because you can't tell the difference between a break and a sprain sometimes it's tricky but if you if it's if you're functioning it's not a big deal Mm. just take it easy right i guarantee you i've been telling my people my finger has been broken probably a hairline fracture in my finger because i know what that feels like it's not bad I just tape it up. If I go to the doctor, what are they going to say? Wear a huge splint for eight months. I won't be, or not eight months, like six weeks, two months till it heals. I won't be able to use my finger. It might break anyway again. So I just manage it. Inevitable nature of doing martial arts, right? I can have my full range of motions. I just make sure to tape it up. No big deal. If your bone is sticking out, yeah, go to the hospital. <laughs> get that sorted out. You don't want to get an infection. You want it to set properly. So really, you need to learn. If you want to recover quickly, learn some basic medical practices, basic physio. You can read online from good sources. Good sources. Right, for a lot of stuff, I like Ben Greenfield. Um, but there are other places you can see it, right? Do proper research. Reddit is not your thing. Random websites are not good. Actual good medical sites you know in the early days of the internet they're like ah fucking webmd all these hypochondriacs think they know how to do it i know better than them blah 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 if you know what you're looking for you can actually um figure it out 
Be your own doctor, but be educated. Listen to what they are saying and read between the lines. Consult different people. If you get injured, you can get healed faster if you know what you're doing. Remember, uh, atrophy kicks in in 72 hours. That means if you do not use it, you lose it, as in your muscle mass disappears rapidly. I've experienced this personally when I broke my foot and my calf on one side shrunk right up. You need to keep moving within reason, right? Get the swelling down. Get your range of motion back, physio drills, to the point where you can bear weight, body weight, to the point where you can do light grip if it's a hand or something. Start doing strength training. You can't go ham right away. Depending on the nature of the injury, you might not be able to even do the regular activities for six months, maybe a year. You will probably not be 100% again for a year or a year and a half. You have to listen to your body on that. But don't just listen to people who have huge gaps, knowledge gaps, and they don't know you personally. As well as if you don't know how to articulate your injury properly and they're not getting scans, you're screwed. I know someone whose back was messed up, like messed up in the Canadian medical system. Years and years and years and years. Messed up. But they had high pain tolerance and just sucked it up. Someone, I'm not going to name names, might have been me, said demand an MRI or a CT scan. The results came back. Holy shit. Your back is like an 80-year-old. What the hell? Medical system, we need to fuse your spine. I was like, under no circumstances are you going to allow them to fuse your spine. They ended up going out of country to America, getting stem cell treatment, as well as changing dietary things to reduce inflammation and getting more education, and boom, range of motion. Finally, for the first time in five years, the medical system failed. Because our medical system, if you're not if you're not acting like you're about to die, they don't like, oh, you're fine. Fuck off, you lazy assholes. I don't care if you went to medical school for 10 years. That's bullshit. You're not actually operating in a manner that's due care. You know, that's why I think South Korea and Taiwan did so well medically in responding to COVID. The medical systems were properly prepared for these kind of things. They weren't overburdened. Everyone is reasonable. It's actually a healthcare system that seemed to be truly set up for proper care. The care of patients is more important than your fucking unions. The care of patients is more important than government policies. Making sure it is actually the best medical system with the best advice and the best effective treatments is what matters in those countries, at least from what I can tell. I'm sorry, doctors. That's not, that's not how our system is. You can talk all you want about the Hippocratic Oath. I don't see it. I see politics interfering. I see ego interfering. It's bullshit. So if you get injured like I did in my knee story, you have to figure out what's best for you sometimes. So go get educated. Basic first aid is where I would start and and move on for there. So next one. Risk of injury in Krav Maga, a musician's perspective. Editor's note. This post was originally written on November 9th, 2016. As we are currently doing a series on injuries, we thought we would repost some past articles on this topic. This one was written by assistant instructor Dave Young, who is a professional musician as well as martial artist. Like many who train martial arts, injury is a big concern, especially if it can affect your ability to do other hobbies or your job. Yet many musicians train in the martial arts without issues like David Lee Roth of Van Halen. 
and discipline and consistency needed for music is much like that of martial arts. So it should be natural draw for musicians, but fear of injury can often prevent many from learning something they always wanted to learn. See our previous post on injury anxiety. This, however, has never stopped Dave, who has since moved out of the city, and we wish him the best. We know he will continue his martial arts journey no matter where he is, so keep an eye out for this bearded warrior. In any martial arts, there is always the risk of getting injured. I think most martial arts and self-defense students have experienced at least one mild injury during their training. This is the trade-off. Training that is meant to prevent violence requires violence, so it must be imbued with the inherent risk. Yet being trained allows you to reduce risk in a real fight. So how can you avoid injury in training and avoid injury in the real situation? As a musician, my hands and my brain are the two most important things that allow me to write, record, and perform. Thus, throwing punches and getting hit in the head may seem counterintuitive towards preserving these body parts. There is a balance between avoiding injury and maintain my ability to work, and taking the risk of injury to be able to defend myself and my family. First of all, I am not a fan of being punched in the face or hit in the head in any manner. Many studies show that repeated blows to the head, even those who don't cause concussions, can cause long-term changes in the brain and have lasting neurological effects. That being said, it is very important from a Krav Maga perspective to experience high-pressure real-world situations and to be able to react appropriately. In a fight, you're going to get hit, so experiencing the real thing in a simulated-type environment is invaluable as a learning tool. At UTKM, we spar in a very controlled manner, and this is great for safety. Even so, accidents happen. Everyone is at a different point in learning to control their strikes and their emotions. So the best way to avoid getting hit and protect your brain is to train hard and improve your techniques. When it comes to protecting my hands, the simple idea applies. Hone your technique. I worked hard on improving my technique so that I retrained through muscle memory of the proper movements and positions. Whether I'm punching a bag, focus mitts, or sparring with one of my many opponents, this reduces my chances of injury. Remembering to keep my hands up, fists at 45 degrees, elbows slightly bent, and so on. When I ingrain this into my muscle memory, I won't need to remember to do it in this distressing situation. My body will know how it will know it, and it'll do it. Better hurt in the gym than killed in the street. Perhaps I will never be required to fight for my life to protect my family. Nevertheless, in the end, I would rather train hard and prevent break and perhaps break my hands in defending myself successfully than be overly worried about hurting myself in training and ending up seriously injured in a real confrontation. Written by Dave Young. Audio by Jonathan Fader. So, Dave, Dangerous Dave, who's no longer with us because he moved to uh, the island. Why, Dave? Why? Anyways, uh, Vancouver Island, for anyone who's wondering. But... Those who don't know about Dave, he was in the Devin Townsend Project. He didn't like to talk about it because the band broke up, which was huge in Europe. He was a guitarist and band manager. Not so huge here, but huge in Europe. Like, huge. And yet he still trained martial arts. And he had a legitimate concern that if I get injured, my hands, he has an issue. But he accepted that and was just careful of it. Right? A lot of people, professional, like if you're in a profession, guess what? You do actually have insurance. 
um, for such things. And it will actually um, protect you financially if you were to get injured. But if you always wanted to be a ninja, and you wanted to say you're a musician or, I don't know, a surgeon, you can do it. There is risk. You just got to train smart. Right? It is important that you're smart about your training. Right? And I think actually in the first week of Dave's training, he broke his foot. And then he came back, if I remember. Became one of our top instructors. Um, But as he said, better hurt in a gym than killed on the street. Now, on the other side... There's a very, very famous jiu-jitsu instructor who's well-respected and comes from a well-respected family that has a program for Hollywood elite actors, etc., where they can learn jiu-jitsu without ever sparring properly because fear of injury. And they get ranked up. Now, this program has been widely criticized, even by other stars who do proper training. That is not producing seriously good results. There was a famous actor, Ashton Kutcher, who got his black belt from this individual. Uh, sorry, brown belt. Brown belt. And everyone is just like, he's not a brown belt. This is bullshit. So, yes, your fear of injury is valid because you have a job to do, but fuck off. Do it properly and train properly, but be careful in your training and only train with those who you feel comfortable with, which brings up the next one, injury and partners. To avoid injury, pick your partner wisely. Recently, we have been doing a series on injury and martial arts from emotional aspect to recovery. In this one, we're going to discuss one way to help preventing injuries. That is, learning to pick the right partner. The reason for this is the right partner can make your training experience even better, whereas the wrong partner can make injuries happen. In Krav Maga and other martial arts, there is a phenomenon referred to as the spastic white belt. These are individuals who are chaotic in their movements or are much bigger than others and try to muscle their way through everything, even though they do not know the technique. This odd species of new student is common in any gym, and while it is ultimately the instructor's job to manage them, you have to watch out for them and know how to protect yourself. You are, after all, an adult. Thus, you can make adult decisions. This means when it comes time to pick a partner, know who you would like to be with to optimize your training. Of course, if you are new, then the instructor should be assigning you a more experienced student to work with in order to help you guide through the, pro- through the process. Although sometimes it's simply, simply the luck of the draw as the instructor has no control over who shows up to any one class. Beyond that, when an instructor says, find a partner, that's when you need to act swiftly to pair with a person or persons who you know you can train effectively with. Often, what happens when the students are told to get a partner, everyone kind of looks around and waits, but this is how you often end up being picked last, and getting stuck with someone you and everyone else didn't want to be with. By the way, if you're the person that no one wants to be with, figure out what the hell you're doing wrong. If you are lucky, the instructor will be on point and notice your discomfort, or they don't like the pairing due to size or skill and will change it for you. 
However, once again, you're an adult and there is only one instructor, usually. So partner picking really becomes about ownership and taking responsibility for this very important task. What things should you consider? One, have you trained with them before? This sounds obvious, but it isn't always. If you haven't trained with someone, if you have trained with someone before and you're comfortable with them, then try to partner with them quickly. Or if you have trained with someone before and you didn't enjoy it, then try to avoid them, as politely as possible, of course. If there is a big issue or valid concern, make sure you talk to your instructor. In general, you want to partner with people you feel you're comfortable with so that you are relaxed and focused while learning, and therefore can train properly. Although Krav Maga is going to make you feel uncomfortable either way, so yay. Number two, have you seen the training? Have you seen them training before? If you have not trained with a person, then have you seen them train with others? If not, then ask yourself, were you practicing proper situational awareness? If you were, then you should have some idea if they're a good option for you based on their actions and reactions of their past partners. 3. Is their size and skill appropriate to the drill? Unless the instructor has specifically asked you to train with someone much larger than you, then, especially as a beginner, it might be better to partner with someone who isn't too big or too small. For some activities, like holding pads, size and skill won't matter as much, unless, of course, they're a heavyweight, in which it might not matter who holds the pad, it still might hurt. Other techniques, like bear hugs or grabs, will be difficult at first if the person is too big and strong compared to you. When you're starting out, you need to get the technical aspect down first before you can go ham with full aggression. 4. Do they have a reputation at the school? Have you heard people complain about this person's power control? Have you been warned to watch out for them in certain contexts, such as sparring? Are they known for going too hard or not following drills correctly? Forewarned is forewarned. Forearmed. Forewarned is forearmed. Some people may be great to drill with, but in sparring, they can't control their power. Some just don't get the basics of holding pads. In any case, bring it to the attention of the instructor if the situation doesn't improve or is dangerous. Of course, at the end of the day, some people just need a bit of work and help to be a good partner. Most people don't want to do things wrong, and they certainly don't want to earn the title of spastic white belt and become pariahs in the gym. It could be the few minutes before or after classes, all it takes to cue someone about how to hold pads, why a drill flow a certain way, or how to figure out pulling punches and kicks. Helping someone improve or informing them of something they didn't realize they were doing incorrectly will benefit them, you, and the rest of the students. Well, this is largely up to your instructor again. If you're an adult working on your communication skills with your training partner, is important. It is, after all, a very important aspect of stage one and two self-defense, communication. Either way, mastering the art of picking a partner and or building your partners up is more important than you think. After all, without good training partners, you will not develop at the rate you want. Or worse, injury might be in your future if you pick the wrong partner. So think hard, communicate effectively, learn the spot, learn to spot those who work for you as a partner and get them quickly for training. Written by Jonathan Fader. Audio by Jonathan Fader. So, to avoid injury, pick your partner wisely. 
Now, as an instructor, I don't always have the choice about who I will train with. Sometimes they have to be bigger. Let me be really honest. If you're 250 pounds, I don't want to do private lessons with you. In Krav Maga, for sure not. In Jiu-Jitsu even. I don't want to. Physics. I may have a higher skill level than you, but fuck you. You're bigger than me. Now, uh, I was listening to a little podcast. A uh, famous jiu-jitsu guy, for example, was uh, talking about, you know, it's very actually very common. I want to go train at the gym of so-and-so, famous person. You're not training with them. You are probably going to injure them. They're a world-class martial artist, whether MMA or jiu-jitsu or whatever. Spastic people can easily accidentally poke someone in the eye, kick someone in the nuts, hit them in a weird way. You want to go to a gym because you want to train with that person? Depending on the nature of the martial art, depending on what it is, uh, no. They're actually being smart. I'm not training with you. I could kick your ass if we're going ham, but that's not a good learning experience for you. And also, I don't want to get injured. Just because they're better than you doesn't mean they can't get injured. If you know in your gym, for example, like so the best people in the world do that for a reason, especially if they're in competition mode. You're new, you're spastic, you could accidentally hurt them doing something ridiculous. Now, every gym often has that one person who's just a spaz. And nobody wants to partner with them. Now, if you're a more experienced student, you have to partner with them because they won't get better if you don't. But just your skill is high enough that you can manage them. But if you're new and you don't want to partner with someone because they're a spaz or you don't want to partner with someone because they're bigger than you, when the instructor says, find a partner, don't stand around looking like a fool or rather a child who can't make an adult decision. And then if you get stuck with that person, you're too polite to say you don't want to be with them. Be like, sorry, I don't, I don't feel comfortable training with you. That's the adult thing to do in communication. It comes back to the whole anxiety issue that we've been having in society. Fucking communicate. Sorry, you're a spaz. I don't want to partner with you. Or, hey, listen, my skill's not good enough. I don't feel comfortable training with you because of how large you are. I'm not talking about like obese. I'm talking about just a big human being. Now, if you know they're larger than you and they can control themselves just fine, there's no issues. But a lot of big people, you know, 200 plus pound individuals, muscle or otherwise, don't understand how strong they are when they're with smaller people. You know, I'm not that big of a guy. I'm not that strong of a guy. 5'6", 160 pounds. But if you're a 100-pound person and you have zero experience, I can probably ragdoll you pretty easily. Now, imagine someone who's 200 pounds. They don't even need the skill. They can just pick you up like it's nothing and throw you across the room. Right? So when it comes to training, you need to be an adult and get over your anxiety and get over your issues with dealing with people and being confrontational. You can do it in a polite way, but you need to indicate both to the instructor and to other partners if there's an issue in the moment. Because if you don't and you like, you know, often actually <clears throat> two skilled individuals start going banging at it because they like it. But then the instructor has to be like, oh, pull back. Right. That's the other end of the spectrum, by the way. It's that you, you, you like it too much and then you get injured because you were going too hard and it wasn't appropriate. Right. There's a reason Thai fighters can do so many fights because they don't train like morons because of ego. I need to train hard. Like Kramaga is not Kramaga if I can't train hard and aggressively and get a good sweat every single time. Yes, it's an important part of it. 
but it's not everything. So it's a hard concept for people to learn new when they have anxieties or when they haven't been taught how to communicate to other people on these, this topic matter. Now, the instructor should be paying attention and they should, should be able to sort this out, but um, sometimes there's 30, 40 students and one instructor. So what I do is I'm taking responsibility for my class, but part of that is I'm teaching my students to do it themselves so that it's not just on me. And by doing that, I am taking the responsibility. If I see something I don't like, I'll say it. If I don't like the partners, I'll change them. But I'm putting the onus on everyone just as much as me because safety is everybody's responsibility within reason. Again, you can't demand that no injuries happen. or In martial arts, nobody should die. But with regards to COVID, I'm sorry. You can't shut everything down just because some people are going to die. People die every year for all sorts of reasons, and our fear of death is crippling when it comes to policies. And it just results in bad policies, right? It's just a reality of life. Maybe, and I don't say this too often publicly, maybe do more shrooms. As relating to John Hopkins studies with regards to cancer patients who are terrified of death, and all of a sudden they're okay with it. There is, it's not, and by the way, fear of death is not an irrational fear. It's a very reasonable and rational fear, but you can't allow it to override every aspect of your life, especially when you're younger. Anyways, you need to be an adult. You need to learn to communicate. You need to pick your partners wisely, and hopefully you'll help avoid injury from that reason. So uh, this topic was covered from several different perspectives. Again, if you don't like something I said, go research it yourself from multiple damn goddamn sources. And if you don't know how to read a research paper to know if it's even a good research study, well, I can't help you there. A lot of scientists can't even seem to do that right nowadays. A lot of PhDs. Just because you call yourself a scientist doesn't mean you're practicing science because there's a very specific method to doing it properly. Otherwise, it's not goddamn science. But anyways, uh, that's a whole other topic, which I can't be bothered to sit down and write a coherent argument because that would require research and me actually writing a paper and then reading off of it. Otherwise, I just do my ranty normally stuff. Um, But injury is a reality of martial arts from the physical and the mental And if you want to do it, you're going to have to learn. If your body's weak, you can make it stronger. If your mind is weak, you can make it stronger. You can minimize and mitigate the risk of hurt and injury. You can't eliminate. So keep that in mind and train safe. So that was our podcast on injury from our blog posts and some rants that have been added in. Don't forget, when we can operate normally and our government ceases to be irrational in their silly application of all the rules, then you can come train with us at www.urbantacticskm.com or you can train online at www.utkmu.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Urban Tactics KM, Instagram Urban Tactics Kramaga, Facebook Urban Tactics Kramaga, and I guess Parlor now, but I haven't really put anything up yet. So, oh, that's at Urban Tactics KM, I think. So, thanks for listening. You're listening to The Warriors Day. Warriors Day. Brought to you. 
by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions.